here for Good Friday, you know that what we did was we took an apologetics approach to Good Friday and we laid out some premises and then we, we looked at it logically, we, we looked at it through the lens of Scripture and we established that Jesus died for the sins of mankind. And he paid the price, he paid for the penalty of our sins that we might be free in Christ Jesus. What I want to do this morning on, on Easter morning, on Resurrection Day, is to lay out the case for the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe you've never heard the term apologetics at all, um, but, but I, I mentioned Friday, um, I mentioned Friday night that I find it difficult this season and, and also Christmas to make fresh again and again the same truths every year. It's always a challenge to me. It almost makes me wish I was Lutheran and had the liturgy and I, I did say the same things year after year. Not, not really. I think I'd make a terrible Lutheran. Um, but on, on, on Good Friday, we, we presented that case for the death of Messiah and this morning on Resurrection Day, I want to give you the case for the resurrection of Jesus. It seems appropriate, right? Um, what I want to do is approach the resurrection of Jesus as an apologist would. And remember, if you were here Friday, we, we talked about what that word means. An apologist or apologia in the Greek is to give a reasoned or a reasonable response or an answer ultimately for why we believe what we believe as Christians. To be able to articulate to other people why we believe what we believe. Now, if you are a Christian, if you've been born again, you've been blood-bought by Jesus, you need to engage in apologetics. Not just so that you can articulate your faith to other people and give a reasonable response for why you believe, but so you can evangelize. Because inevitably, the people that you talk to, the people that God's put in your life, they're going to say, well, why do you believe that? You believe a dead man rose from the grave? Why would you believe that? Well, I'm going to give you the answer to that question this morning. Um, so, so if anyone's here today has never put their faith in Jesus, has never given their life fully over to him, it's my prayer this morning, it's my hope that the hearing of these truths would not only convince your mind, but that they would sway your heart. And so what I want to do is present to you three premises this morning uh, in my argument for the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus truly actually, physically rose from the dead. Here's the first premise. Jesus promised to do that very thing. Jesus promised to raise from the dead, to rise from the dead. That's number one. Number two, eyewitness accounts attest to this miracle. There were eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. And then third, this singular event has impacted the entire world. It's unprecedented. So let's look at these, because none of these three alone would, I think, be sufficient to sway someone into believing the gospel. But taken together, these three, I think this argument is persuasive, and that's an understatement. And so for each premise, I'm going to give you some evidence for the assertion. And when I'm finished with my argument this morning, my hope is for you who are in this room, it's twofold. If you're not a born-again disciple of Jesus, you would become one. You would say, I, don't, I can't not follow the Lord Jesus. I know that's bad grammar. Just forgive me. Uh, but if you're already a follower of Jesus, you would be buffeted and built up in your faith so that you would be emboldened to share that faith with other people. 
We need this in these days. So let's begin with premise one. Jesus promised to rise from the dead. So Jesus predicted not only his death, as we saw on Friday night, but also he predicted his own rising from the dead. And let me give you just a few examples of this from the gospel texts. In Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23, we read that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and that he would be killed, and on the third day, he would be raised. And Peter took him aside, because you know, Peter knows what's best. And, and Peter says, Lord, 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 far be it from you to, to, to say this. To, Lord, this would never happen to you. I'm not going to let this happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus turned and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. You're thinking in the flesh. You're not thinking in the spirit. We, we go further in Matthew's gospel into chapter 20. And starting in verse 17, we read this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, so they're walking. He's kind of got the 12 with them. They're, they're kind of right there, close conversation. He says, look, guys, we're going to Jerusalem and the son of man's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they're going to condemn him to death. And they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So he's telling his disciples in advance of these things. He's predicting exactly what's going to happen to him. In Matthew 27, starting in verse 62, it says that the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, right, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered with Pilate. They came before Pilate and they said, sir, we, we were just thinking, we were just thinking, we were remembering that that imposter said when he was still alive, after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. So we'd like to do something about that. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the, his disciples will come and steal his body away and tell people he rose from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So they're anticipating fraudulent activity on the part of the disciples, and they're coming to Pilate. They set a guard over the tomb. Even the enemies of Jesus knew that he had predicted that he would rise from the dead. They knew it. You go to Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to 33. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And again, this is, this is the same telling of the, what we just read, read in Matthew, but this is Mark's gospel. And, and Peter says, he took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. You're not, you're not thinking about what God's plan is here for the good of all mankind. You're just thinking about you. And then I'll just give you one more passage on this this morning. John 10, uh, starting in verse 14 down to 18. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. 
I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them and also. That's not the Mormons, by the way. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That's not the Mormons. He's talking about other people around the world who believe the gospel because of the message, right? Um, he says, there are other sheep that are not of this fold, that are not Jews. I, I have to bring them in also, and they're going to listen to my voice. And then he says this, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. Nobody takes it from me. See, the Romans didn't take Jesus by force and kill him. He let them do it. He could have stopped it at any moment. All he had to do was say a word. He said, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority. Jesus, I'm the creator of the cosmos. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. So here we've got five clear examples of the resurrection being predicted beforehand by Jesus himself. And there are more than this that we just simply don't have time to explore this morning. But the resurrection cannot be seen as an isolated event in the life of Christ. The fact that he would raise from the dead was central. It was central to the teaching ministry of Jesus. It was always the plan. It wasn't an afterthought. Man, I really, really made the Pharisees angry. I guess I'm going to have to go to the cross. I wasn't really planning on that. No, this was always the plan. Always the plan. So premise one in our argument this morning is Jesus, Jesus promised to rise from the dead. He promised to do that. And that's attested to by eyewitness, eyewitnesses whose accounts have been corroborated and validated. Okay, so there's premise one. Here's premise two. Eyewitnesses attest to this miracle. There were people alive at the time who saw the risen Christ. And among the eyewitnesses to Jesus' death were his family, his disciples, and he had some hostile witnesses too. He had the Roman, Roman legion there, the Roman guards, those who actually crucified him and stood guard over the crucifixion. They all all of them experienced three hours of darkness and a mighty earthquake that split rocks and opened graves and tore the very curtain of the temple going into the Holy of Holies. They all experienced that. Jesus' followers showed deep sorrow. And, and it says in the text that the crowds were silenced and they beat their breasts. They, were, they didn't know what was happening. They were alarmed by this eclipse and alarmed by this earthquake. They didn't know what was happening. They just knew something bad was happening. And they had these unusual events not occurred. As the biblical record states, few would have believed the account. There, there was no doubt Jesus was dead in the mind of Pilate. There was no, no doubt that Jesus was dead in the minds of the Roman centurion and the two members of the ruling Jewish administration. See, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate to release the body of Jesus for burial, and Pilate summoned the centurion for confirmation of Jesus' death on the cross. There's, a good, there's good reason to believe this was the same soldier, by the way, that earlier acknowledged Christ as, surely this was the Son of God. You remember that scene at the crucifixion? 
at the time of his death. And, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both members of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling council, buried Jesus' body. They put him in the tomb before the beginning of the next holy day, according to John 19. They knew he was dead. The female relatives and followers of Jesus were convinced that he was dead as well. They purchased spices and fragrant oils and aloes to, at the end of the holy day, and they prepared these on the day before the weekly Sabbath because they planned to add them to all the myrrh and aloes uh, that had been used by Joseph and Nicodemus in the embalming of Jesus. You don't embalm living people. It's clear from the text that Jesus was physically dead. The biblical text tells us also that many were raised from the dead to physical life at the time of Jesus's own resurrection and were seen in Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever read that in Matthew 27, 51 to 53. When Jesus ascended, when he rose again to life, a lot of the Old Testament saints were walking around. Wow. That's, that's insane. Dad, I think I just saw Moses over there. That's just crazy. As a result of these events, many relatives and friends of Jesus and the disciples became eyewitnesses of these resurrected individuals, these righteous servants of God that had lived in the Old Testament. This was an amazing event. It was a testimony to thousands of people in and around Jerusalem. They all witnessed this. You think about other eyewitness accounts. I would count Paul and what he had to say in Acts 17 when he was in Athens and he was at the Areopagus uh, he's preaching to a bunch of pagans, and he says this. Paul says, the times of ignorance God's overlooked, which is kind of a backhanded way of saying you guys are ignorant. It's times of ignorance, and ignorance is just the lack of knowledge. You know that, right? It's, it's, not, it's just you lack knowledge. But God's overlooked that. And right now he's commanding people everywhere to repent, Paul says, because he's fixed a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him, that man, Jesus, from the dead. So Paul's preaching the resurrection in Athens. He's preaching in the Roman Empire. He's saying, God's assured us that he's, He's going to judge the world because the person that he's going to use as the judge, his proxy, Jesus, he raised him from the dead. Paul was confronted by the risen Christ himself in Acts chapter 9. His own life radically changed forever. We could go to Luke, the, 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 the uh, beginning of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Remember that Luke was a, a doctor, a, a medical doctor, and he is writing an account for a, a person named Theophilus, who's uh, probably hired him to gather the, the information and to write an accounting of the, the life and ministry of Jesus. And so the beginning of Luke's gospel starts like this. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time in the past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty 
concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke's a Gentile. He's a doctor. His gospel reflects a very distinctive point of view. He's, he's concerned with Jesus as the son of man, as his humanity more than anything else. And so um, he focuses on what Jesus felt and what he experienced. And as a historian, Luke was very concerned about his gospel being based on eyewitness accounts. See, the resurrected Christ appeared first to Mary Magdalene near the tomb and later to two more women disciples. Uh, that in itself is scandalous because women weren't considered able to be witnesses in a court of law in that place at that time. And yet here's Jesus appearing to women as a first priority. And, and, and the, stone, um, the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. You understand? Nobody rolled the stone away. He's just like, let me out. He rolled it away. He rolled it away. He didn't need to be let out. He was trying to let the eyewitnesses in. They couldn't get in to confirm the resurrection unless he opened it. Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. By the way, that's where we get our name as a church, Emmaus Road, right? And one was named Cleopas. And, and expounding the prophecies about Messiah from the Holy Scriptures and sharing a meal with them, Jesus helped them to understand that he was the resurrected Christ. And, and while they're having dinner, and he says, and he, and he gave thanks, and he, he broke the bread. And in that moment, their eyes were open. And they were like, whoa, and he disappeared. Like it literally into thin air, he disappeared. And it says those two disciples are so moved by what they had experienced that they didn't, they didn't wait till the next morning and say, you know, we got to go back to Jerusalem and tell the guys, yeah, let's just get a good night's sleep first. They got up, they ran seven miles in the dark back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what they had seen. Jesus appeared among the gathered disciples and then they touched him. As, as the two disciples were telling of their experience, Jesus appeared among them all and even ate food with them to show that he wasn't a ghost. He showed them the wounds in his hands and his feet and his pierced side, and he invited them to touch him. He says, does a ghost have flesh and bone like I have? Right? He rebuked them for not believing the accounts of those who'd already seen them. Eight days later, Jesus appeared again, this time with Thomas present, because remember, Thomas wasn't there, and everybody calls him Doubting Thomas, and he kind of gets a bad rap. It really wasn't his fault. He's just looking for reasonable evidence. Well, Jesus gives it to him. <laughs> After eight days, Jesus appeared again with, with Thomas present. And John, John's gospel recounts that Jesus did many things in the presence of the disciples and convinced them that he was and is the resurrected Christ. The disciples went to Galilee where Jesus met them on a mountain. While they were in Galilee, he appeared to them by the shore uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And at this point, the risen Jesus had already appeared to Peter three times. You know that episode. Peter, do you love me? <laughs> no, bro. Do you love me, right? <laughs> Pete, do you love me? At one point, while waiting for Jesus to show himself, Peter and six others decided to go and catch fish. Didn't catch anything. Jesus shows up, mirac miraculously filling their nets with 153 large fish. We read in the scriptures the account of more than 500 brothers who saw Christ in Galilee. Most of those guys were still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians some 30 years later. In the Gospels, in Acts, in Paul's letters, it is evident that many, many people were alive at that time who could have disputed 
They could have refuted the facts provided by the New Testament writers, and, and, and they were available to do so. If the details had been wrong, if, if the whole thing had been made up or falsified, there could have been someone at some point that says, no, 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 that's not what happened. But instead, what we find among all the accounts is consistent agreement and, and consistency in what we're told. Former prosecutors and detractors like Paul, whose name had been Saul previously, did not dispute the records that we have today. They are unchanged. And as time went on, Christians were willing to live under the constant threat of death as Christianity became outlawed. To, to live under the threat of death and maintain your faith in a risen Messiah, if that's all a hoax, to, to, to be at the point of the threat of death for what you believe, that would be unthinkable. Unless they truly were convinced Jesus was not a charlatan, but actually risen from the grave. Because nobody willingly dies for what they know to be a lie. They all went to their deaths with the name of Jesus on their lips. So premise one was Jesus promised to rise from the dead. Premise two, eyewitness accounts attest to this miracle. And then here's premise three. This singular event has impacted the entire world. The Christian faith spread all over the globe. You know, within a couple of months of the resurrection, there were thousands in and around Jerusalem that had become his disciples. Within a couple of centuries, there were hundreds of thousands in the region of the Mediterranean calling themselves Christians. Little Christs is what that means, followers of Jesus. By the year 325 AD, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman emperor, Constantine, and there's a lot to say about that that's not good, um, and the political consolidation of power that happened there. But, but it had spread. The, the, the gospel had spread. The religion the belief system of Christianity had spread all over the known world at that time, and eventually it spread to the entire globe. And one of the impacts of this faith uh, <clears throat> is that believers in Jesus in some places have experienced persecution. Now, here in the U.S., we've not really experienced persecution, though we're, we're, I think we're transitioning, okay? Um, but let me, let me just, um, well, many have chosen Many of our brothers and sisters around the world have chosen persecution rather than to recant their faith. In the face of physical harm or even death, they refuse to recant their faith, but, but continue to cling to Jesus. And not only have our brothers and sisters down through history suffered for their faith in Jesus, many have paid the ultimate price laying down their lives instead of recanting. So let me just share, I want to give you one example this morning, and I'll keep it brief, but I'm a big fan of the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you don't have a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, do yourself a favor and get one, and, and then read it. Like, don't just put it on the shelf, like, read it, because it will, it will stir your heart to read the accounts of people who loved Jesus and gave their lives for Jesus. In the 1500s, um, Europe was on the cusp of the Enlightenment, um, but, but Bibles were not available to lay people, to non-clergy. In fact, the only Bibles in Europe at that time uh, were in the Roman Catholic churches. They were on the altar at the front of the Catholic church, and usually they were chained down. Um, and part of the reason for that was that most of the time what they'd done is they'd done uh, gold filigree and lining of the pages in gold. 
So they were worth a lot of money. But, but only the priests knew Latin and only the priests could read the Bible in Latin because that was the only language that the Bible was in at that time. And nobody else could read that language. And so they just had to listen to whatever, whatever the priest said was what they believed because they couldn't read for themselves the word of God. And the Roman Catholic Church was the only game in town. And they suppressed those who actually taught the scriptures without their approval. And one of those men who did that was named William Tyndale. Maybe you've heard of Tyndale Publishing. They took that name based on William Tyndale, who dared to publish the New Testament in some language other than Latin, which nobody spoke anymore. And Tyndale argued against Catholic doctrine, and he believed that the Word of God should be available to all people to read for themselves. So strong was his testimony and love for Jesus that when later he was jailed for 18 months, he converted his jailer to Christ and his jailer's wife to Christ and their children to Christ. All, all over 18 months, he, he, he worked on sharing the gospel with this family. And then you know what happened to him as a result of all that effort? He was burned at the stake burned alive in 1536 because he dared to preach the gospel and attempted to get God's word in the hands of the laity. Laity is the term we use for non-clergy. Right? He just wanted people who loved Jesus, who had faith in Jesus to have access to the Bible. And they killed him for that. His last words as he was being burned alive were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Open his eyes. And England was one of the nations going forward at that point that, that more or less bought into the Reformation early on and ended up fighting uh, with Rome over this. But Tyndale stands in a proud tradition that goes back to the first century disciples and apostles of Jesus, all of whom died martyrs' deaths. They all met their deaths fulfilling the Great Commission in foreign lands. Did you know that? The time does not permit me to tell the stories of so many Christians who received death rather than to recant their faith, rather than to deny Jesus. And I don't mean those just in the early centuries of the church. I mean today, around the world, at this very moment, our brothers and sisters are standing and saying, I will not renounce my faith in Jesus. And they're being killed. Our brothers and sisters in China meet and share their faith at a very real risk of their own lives and the lives of their loved ones. In parts of Africa, where the majority population has embraced Islam, to preach Jesus will get you killed. You share the gospel with your neighbor, you're going to get killed. And yet they continue to propagate the gospel at the risk of their own lives. This is the reality all over the globe right now at this present moment. The world is increasingly hostile to the message of salvation through Christ alone. And nevertheless, the global impact of Christian missions education and charitable institutions is incalculable. For example, did you know that universities like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth were founded to foster Christian higher education and theological disciplines for training up people for ministry? You wouldn't know it today. Unfortunately, they've gradually moved from their charters and their primary mission and instead have become bastions of indoctrination for Marxist ideologies. The same can be said for hundreds of other faith-based colleges and universities around the world seeking to integrate faith and learning from a Christian worldview when they began, now unable to, to stand the tide of the world giving in to, to compromise. We could talk at length about church-affiliated hospitals and healthcare systems uh, that, that promote Christian values. 
continuing to try to provide quality health care. The emphasis of excellence and compassion and dispensing that care, being consistent with the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. People just coming up under the teaching of Jesus and saying, I want to help people. I want to be part of the healing process in their lives, physically or mentally, because Jesus healed physically and mentally. We're talking social agencies, church-centered counseling and enrichment services, faith-based counselors, ministers to dysfunctional individuals and families attempting to restore relationships in the home because that's what Jesus did. Christian charitable organizations and foundations providing nonprofit services and grants. We go on and on about um, support locally, nationally, globally, uh, different initiatives to meet physical and mental and educational needs of millions around the globe, all all initiated and funded largely by Christians. We could talk about other non-government organizations and their faith-based agencies that feed the hungry, provide shelter to the homeless, meet the life needs of basic, uh, basic life needs of people, all out of the biblical mandate to love people made in the image of God. We, we could go on and on and on. See, everywhere you look, whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, you're seeing the, the imprint of Jesus all over the world. His effect, his touch, everywhere we look, we see the impact of Jesus. Not Vishnu, not Allah, not Amun-Ra, not Zeus, not Odin, Jesus. Only Jesus. So remember that premise one in our argument this morning was that Jesus promised to rise from the dead. Premise two, eyewitness accounts attest to this miracle. And premise three, this singular event has impacted the entire world in an unprecedented way. So here's our conclusion. Here's the only conclusion we can reasonably arrive at. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. What now? Well, <laughs> almost, almost time to go home. What now is, I firmly believe we're living in the last days. And you have a choice. Here's your choice. Here's your choice today. You surrender to Jesus' agenda. And if you're not saved, you get saved. And you live sold out for Jesus. Option one. Option two, continue in your sins. Those are your only options. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've not been born again, you can continue in your sins. You can go do your thing. You can pretend like you have actual autonomy. <laughs> but you know, if Jesus just decided at any moment that he didn't want you to keep breathing, you wouldn't breathe. Your life is sustained by the one you deny. So you have a choice. Surrender and give your life to Christ or continue in your sins. Those are your only two options. So how can a person be saved? Very quickly this morning, let me just read you a few passages of Scripture. John 20, 31, we're told that these things are written so that you may believe. God made sure to write down the Word of God so that you can read it and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says, because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name you believe on him, he gives you eternal life. Paul boldly wrote in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. 
So I'm not Jewish or Greek. What, what about? No, Greek was the generic term for everybody else that wasn't Jewish in that time. Anybody else that's not Jewish. In the same, same letter Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he says well, in chapter 10, well, what, what does it say? What does it say? The word is near you. The word's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That word of faith that we proclaim, the gospel message. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, the, the gospel's just that simple. For with the heart one believes and is justified before God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved from their sins. Well, you, you just read on in the same chapter, he says, because everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And we've looked so intently at the things that were written so that we might believe the gospel, the message of Jesus, his offer of salvation, the power of God unto salvation. One need only confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead in order to be saved. See, salvation is hanging on to, to, to all your hope because of what Jesus has done for you. You know that you could never in a million years accomplish for yourself what Jesus has done. That salvation is just saying, I need that thing that I could never do for me, that he's already done for me. And he offers it freely. And we embrace the fact that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I read this week the, the, the words of a Christian author, T.W. Tram, who's actually local here to Washington State. And he said this, and it just struck me. He said, we, we already bear the image of the one who was born in a stable, healed the sick, fed the hungry, raised the dead, walked on water, calmed the storm, forgave sinners, cast out demons, died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. Amen? That's the Jesus we love and worship. And as he calls us deeper into this knowledge of his love, how can we respond this morning? Well, we can give our lives to him. We follow his example and love him enough to die to ourselves. We love him enough to die to ourselves. Paul tells us that in his letters and to live for him. We give our lives to him. In the words of A.W. Tozer, Tozer says, if we're wise, we will do what Jesus did. Endure the cross and despise its shame for the joy that is set before us. To do this is to submit the whole pattern of our lives to be destroyed and then built again in the power of endless life. And then we'll find that it's more than just poetry. It's more than just sweet hymnody and an elevated feeling. But the cross will cut. The cross will cut into where it hurts you the most, sparing neither us nor our carefully cultivated reputations. It will defeat us. And it will bring our selfish lives to an end. Only then, Tozer says, will we rise in fullness of life to establish a pattern of living that is wholly new and free and full of good works. Only then can we walk as Jesus calls us to walk. Listen to me, men and women, Jesus is alive. He's coming again soon. And when he appears, we who believe in faith will become like him, according to 1 John 3 that same incomprehensible burst of light and energy that emanated from his beaten and bloodied corpse will emanate from those of us who've received the Lord. And we'll be transformed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, believers will be gloriously transformed and those who have died in Christ will be raised according to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if you do not already know Jesus this morning, ask him please this morning to be your Lord and Savior. Ask him right now. 
Ask him in these moments. There's no reason to wait. There's nothing to lose except your pride and your sin. And you don't need those anyway. You stand to gain. What you stand to gain is incalculable. Believe in your heart that he's the son of God who died for your sins and raised from the dead and you'll be saved. And then one day soon, gloriously transformed. Time's running out. Time's running out. How I pray that the weight of his glorious sacrifice, his glorious love would light a fire in your soul. Jesus died for you. He died for you. And more than that, he defeated death for you. He rose again from the grave for you. That's radical love. That's radical love. And so I'll just end our time this morning with this quote from Ephesians 3. Paul says, this is why I bow my knees before the Father. This is why I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you would have you be rooted and grounded in love and have strength to comprehend with all the saints when you're together gathered with the church what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God and then he says this and we'll end with this benediction now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross. And more than that, we thank you for the resurrection. You offer us new life if we will only believe, if we will receive it. And we know that that opens the door and you begin to turn our lives in a different direction. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not put their faith in you, you would wrestle with their heart. You would wrestle with them. Just the way Jacob wrestled with you, wanting that blessing. Lord, don't let them go. Continue to work on our hearts, Lord. And those of us who've received you, who believe in you, who've given our lives to you, Lord, continue to make us more like the Jesus we love and serve we ask all these things in your name this morning. Amen. My father-in-law passed in January. We sang that song at his funeral. This just wrecks me. Sorry. But here's the beautiful thing about what we've been talking about this morning. I know where he is. And I know I'm going to see him again soon, I think. I've given you three premises this morning, three arguments that Jesus promised to rise from the dead, their eyewitness accounts to attest to the miracles. And this singular event has impacted the whole world. We've seen the evidence. We know the truth. The question before you is, what are you going to do with Jesus? He's alive. He's coming soon. When he appears, we who believe in faith will become like him. So I just encourage you this morning to respond to Jesus either in faith for the first time or in obedience as his child. And whatever he has for you to do, respond to him. Stanwood, Camino Island, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to take the gospel. So just go and make him known. Send you in the name of Jesus. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.